This week on the NetApp Tech on Tap podcast, we bring in the Solifier experts for a deep dive on the tech with Jeremiah Dooley and Andy Banta. Strap in, this one's going to be a long one and fueled by Solidfire. Welcome to the Tech on Tap podcast with Justin Parisi, Glenn Sizemore, and Sully the Monster. I love NetApp. Oh, yeah. Hello and welcome to the Tech on Tap podcast. I am Justin Parisi and sitting next to me is... Glenn Sizemore. Every week you're going to do this. I am. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get someone else in that chair. Nope. <laughs> not going to happen. <laughs> Probably not. How are you right. doing, Justin? Doing great. Yourself? I, I, I'm good, man. Uh, I, I got to spend another, uh, another weekend knee-deep in PowerShell, so really? I'm happy. Yeah. No Super Bowl, or did you PowerShell while you were Super Bowl? I was PowerShelling while I was Super Bowling. That's pretty I was good. I was writing regular expressions while I was halfway listening to Cam Newton blow a game. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's funny. I was doing something very similar. I was writing PowerShell while listening to the Super Bowl. There you go. I was not doing any of that stuff. I was just straight up watching the Super Bowl and then live tweeting it. <laughs> <laughs> I was I was enjoying the Twitter sphere last night, uh, particularly. Uh, when there was about four minutes left in the game, and it was very clear that uh, a significant portion of uh, engineering here in RTP uh, is going to be going to the NFL shop this morning. Yeah, they're going to be buying some gear. Yeah, yeah, which is interesting. Um, you know, so we were talking about this last week with Amy Lewis and Aaron Delp, but you know, since Solid Fire is located in Boulder, Colorado, and then we're in RTP here, and we're also in Sunnyvale, but. You know, there's a little rivalry going here, you know, so we have, you know, and Solifier wins. I mean, they yeah. win this round. Yeah, f- first round, it's a knockout. It's a knockout. It wasn't <laughs> even close. We didn't even fall onto the fumble. I mean, we couldn't even, we just backed away slowly. So, anyway, uh, also in the in the studio today is Andrew Sullivan. You heard him earlier, so Andrew, say hello. Hello, Andrew. Yes, that never gets old. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I am a father. I'm allowed to dad joke as much as I, as much as I want. <laughs> I've been dad joking since before I was a father. That's pretty sad. But that's you are true. kind of the king of the dad I joke. I am. It, it, I am. It, it's, 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 keep doing it. I will. I will. That's, that's who I am. Um, with us today, we have some special guests. We have Jeremiah Dooley. Jeremiah, could you say hello and tell us a little bit about what you do and where you're from? Good morning, everybody. This is Jeremiah. Um, I am actually from Charlotte, so I'm about two hours away, two and a half hours away from the uh, the the massive podcasting studio here, massive uh, massive podcasting studio here at NetApp. Um, I am one of the principal field architects um, at Solid Fire, and myself, along with uh, Gabe Chapman and Rob Gordon and a couple other folks, we are uh, we're the we're the sales overlays. We're the guys who go out and help people figure out what the product is and how to position it. Subject matter experts on the VMware and OpenStack. Um, pieces of our integration and the things that customers are trying to do. Uh, we spend an awful lot of time on on the road. Uh, that was supposed to get a little bit slower this year. Apparently, NetApp had other plans for that. So yeah, so much for that. Yeah, the the, the Sorry, travel schedule guys. is certainly not slowed down at all. Uh, but we're really excited. We're really excited to have a, a new audience for the discussion. You know, we're really excited to have some. Uh, pretty concrete industry validation of what we were doing and how we were doing it. So we're really excited to be here. So I, I hear you have two calendars now, so that means you can travel twice as much, right? Uh, I, I, am a, I am a Microsoft Windows professional, so I have one calendar because it took me all of about 45 <laughs> minutes to be 100% off of Gmail and into Outlook. So 
uh, my calendar's consolidated, my email's consolidated, and in fact, I'm spending a fair amount of time walking many, many colleagues through the, wait, what is Outlook? <laughs> so it's been, uh, it's been a bit of fun couple weeks. Can we do an Outlook hangout? You know, you know. <laughs> actually, I'm I'm a little jealous of of that experience because one of the things that 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 has kind of bugged me in the back of my mind uh, is for the past like five or the past five or six years, while this whole Google Android thing happened, I have never been able to really enjoy or use that system because I've only ever worked for companies that used Exchange, and and that just that that integration has been terrible. Well, it, so it's been uh, you know a little off topic here, but it's actually been a lot of fun because uh, I, I'm with you. I was Exchange and you know 27 folders deep and yeah. you know enough rules that I had to call the Exchange administrators and ask them to give me more space for them, those sorts of things. And when I went to SolidFire, it's uh, you know obviously an entirely different environment and. Yeah. Uh, it took a while, but I love a bunch of the workflow, uh, the email workflow stuff that I put together in Gmail. So moving back over is kind of double-edged sword, right? I'm familiar with it, totally happy with it. Um, there's some stuff that Outlook does a lot better. You lose all the workflow. So huh. uh, I actually, it, funny story, spent a good portion of yesterday on a WebEx with a couple colleagues trying to go through and rebuild some of that email workflow with categories and uh, multiple mailboxes oh, and, and doing God, some interesting awesome. stuff. So uh, hopefully at this point, this time around, it'll be the best of both worlds and, and get a little bit of the, the, the Google magic from a workflow standpoint, but uh, get to use the tools and the integrations from Outlook. So, so uh, note to self, next time I want to talk disparagingly about Android, i got to get someone from SolidFire who actually knows what they're talking about. I just can't argue with Andrew. <laughs> well, yep, right. And uh, uh, as the world's largest anti-Mac fan, um, you know, I'm, I'm a Windows professional because I've never used anything that had an Apple on it. Uh, you know, the, the, the integrations there with the Android stuff and Microsoft is actually coming off a long way. So interesting. see what happens. So this time I drove us in the, into the ditch, but, but I got distracted by a shiny thing. Someone who's actually gotten to use <laughs> Gmail professionally and not as a personal account. I'll allow it. Okay. We won't, we won't edit that out. That's good, that's good information. <laughs> so also with us today, but remotely... And it's very early for him. It's about 8 a.m. there. And, and I guess yeah, it's very it's, early for some people, but not so much for It's but this yeah. is actually my second meeting today. Uh, hi, oh. I'm, I'm Andy Banta, and uh, I'm, I actually live in Reno, Nevada, but kind of consider the uh, Silicon Valley Bay Area my, my home work stomping grounds. Uh, I'm a principal solutions architect, uh, principal virtualization architect uh, from SolidFire. Uh, um, actually, my business card says I'm a storage janitor, which I think uh, sums up my position a little bit better. That is awesome. It's pretty good. Yeah. Um, and uh, actually, I've spent uh, like my entire career doing software development up until about two months ago when uh, when the Tech Solutions Group at SolidFire pulled me in and uh, been doing that. But uh, up until then, I was doing some VMware integration work. Uh, trying to get VVols working with a SolidFire product. I shouldn't say trying to get VVols working, getting VVols working with SolidFire uh, product. Um, you know, before that, I had a long history of doing uh, storage-related work at both Sun and VMware. Wow, so you're, so you're developer-ass developer. Uh, yes, yes, that's, that's what I've been doing my entire life. Uh, I, I actually was the one who did most of the design and some of the implementation on the iSCSI stack at VMware 
and you know, by the time I left VMware, I was the the iSCSI tech lead at VMware. Yeah. So, so this is the part of the podcast where I just spend the rest of the time being intimidated because people who actually know how to write code for real always intimidate me. I'm always like, I'm 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 a pretend coder. I just do administrative scripting. That's not real code. I can use blink tags in HTML. And okay, I was going to throw in that I've spent my entire career hating Microsoft. So <laughs> uh, I, I run the Linux systems here. Uh, I, everything I've done since day one in my career has pretty much been based on Unix-based systems. And if you go back and look, it's like uh, both Sun when in their heyday and, and certainly VMware were the anti, anti-Microsofts. All right, so it looks like uh, we've got an even fight here. We've got two Microsoft guys against two non-Microsoft guys. <laughs> oh, that's a, an easy fight. I'm kind of a blend of both. That's a pushover. Yeah, yeah the, the NFS slash SIFS TMA. I'm the multi-protocol guy. Yeah. There you go. So, um, Andy, did, did they force you to talk to customers, or did you decide that you wanted to talk to customers? I, I've always kind of enjoyed talking to customers, and, I mean, one of the ways that I actually got into that is... Uh, VMware wasn't doing much of anything to evangelize their iSCSI setup, and there was nobody who could actually go out and talk to people about how to set up iSCSI and how to use it. And uh, you know, it's I I submitted an abstract for a talk at VMworld one year, and went out and uh, talked to people about iSCSI. Actually, I ran across uh, one of those slides not too long ago. Uh, where in 2005 we were talking about iSCSI having about 1% of the sand market. And by the time I left VMware, I seem to recall that there was pretty evenly split between uh, fiber channel iSCSI and NFS as the, the protocols, storage protocols people used. But again, I'm driving you into a ditch now. No, that's okay. We're, we're, <laughs> we're full of ditches here. Yeah, we're not afraid of ditches. We embrace ditches. Um, I, I don't know what our adoption looks like. Andrew, I don't know if you can comment uh, if you're familiar uh, what 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 our protocol breakdown is through the the NetApp uh, yeah, customer so, base. So for the systems that have virtual storage console installed and have auto support turned on, we see about a fifty percent breakdown with NFS. The other fifty percent is about twenty percent iSCSI and thirty percent fiber channel. So NFS is winning. You know that, that that's probably a little bit indicative, though, of of the platform and the customer base. Like, I think if you were if if we were going to go build these environments clean today with VVols, those numbers probably swing pretty drastically in other directions. Well, and so, I think if we also if we start building those volume or those uh, environments with ten gig Ethernet being the low end, yeah, that's um, true too. You know, IP backplane. You know, there are probably some different decisions that get made there. Because it's funny when we look at the SolidFire install base. Um, you know, we've had fiber channel support now for two years, right? So any customer who wants it uh, can do both dual present fiber channel and iSCSI. I would say that we're still 90% iSCSI, right? The customers that are using fiber channel are usually trying to integrate into a traditional or a legacy environment where fiber channel is just the process that they use. But it's interesting when you build an architecture and when you build a platform that's designed to take advantage of those faster IP environments, all of a sudden, the religion between the protocols becomes a lot less important because as long as the access is good, as long as the throughput is good, as long as the latency is good, you know, especially when building it from the ground up, there's not a whole lot of people that are going to fight that battle. Yeah, and I, I specifically right. caveated it with those two things, right, VSC and auto support turned on, because it turns out that there is 
a non-insignificant, actually a rather substantial amount of organizations uh, who don't use VSC primarily for political reasons and don't use uh, auto support either for a mix of political and technical or sometimes just security reasons. So it skews the numbers somewhat, in my opinion. Uh, and I, I think that the the truth is probably closer to that, you know, yeah. one third split for each of the protocols. Right. And go, uh, picking up on the some of the VMware numbers, I, I certainly knew that, uh, you know, when I paid any attention to it at VMware, uh, people who were using NetApp tended to be the, the heavy, more heavily NFS weighted side versus, you know, some of our competitors that don't necessarily have as strong a net an NFS offering. Yeah, for sure. If you go back to you know ESX three five four four one, I mean it was it wasn't really a fair fight for for you know what 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 NetApp was bringing to the table at those you know those times in the market where that product was in its development life cycle. NFS yeah, just agreed. made a lot of sense. All I, I all I heard out of this entire discussion is that NFS won. <laughs> I think that needs to be a slow clap. Wow. Yeah, a very slow clap. Okay, before we get started with the deep dive with the Solidfire guys, let's go ahead and go back in time a little bit to when we interviewed Aaron Delp and Amy Lewis of Solidfire and give a little bit of an overview at a high level of what the company is doing and where to position it in the market. So uh, we talked to them on Friday when they came here to get their badges and official NetAppy stuff, and uh, here they are just talking about some Solidfire things. All right, today in the studio we have... Amy Lewis and Aaron Delp from Solidfire, along with Glenn Sizemore and Andrew Sullivan. We're actually here during Beer Bash. We've actually gone away from Beer Bash. We've come in here to do an interview with our new friends from Solidfire. Um, I'm forcing them to miss the free beer. Uh, that's that's my fault, guys. Sorry. What do you uh, mean? Wait. What do you mean from Solidfire? You mean from NetApp? From Solidfire, now part of powered NetApp. by NetApp. Exactly. <laughs> NetApp powered now. by Solidfire. No, so they they officially did change our logo. It does actually say underneath it, Solid Fire, now part of NetApp. It does. And then it's the in, most in Boulder. the logo ever. Yeah, right. and then in Boulder at the headquarters, uh, they actually took a Sharpie and on the sign uh, wrote in the engineering entrance, Solid Fire, now part of NetApp. Yeah, the they Sharpie. did. Is, is that in the proper branded colors? I want, I want to know that. Yeah, I think it, the Pantone blue was checked Pantone in. Pantone 300C? Yeah, it's yes. engineers. Okay, yeah. okay, just making sure. Oh my God! I can't believe you know that. That's, that's, <laughs> that's, yeah, that's I have a printout a on my desk that has all the brand right colors. Now. Wait, I thought this was a beard bash, not a beer bash. Oh yeah, so <laughs> we actually forced Amy to wear the guest beard. Um, we brought it back. Um, she's the only one, obviously, in this room without a beard. And, you know, that's, that's a good thing. I mean, <laughs> this is not a circus. <laughs> so, hashtag neck beard. Hashtag neck beard. <laughs> All right, so let's start with Aaron. Aaron, tell us a little bit about yourself, what you do, and who you are, and, you know, your favorite things like walks on the beach, <laughs> candlelight dinners. Well done, well done. No, so uh, Aaron Delp, uh, Director of Solutions here at SolidFire slash NetApp. Um, I manage two teams. Uh one is Solutions Architects, so the guys that are out there actually building SolidFire with something, SolidFire with OpenStack, SolidFire with VMware. So we have the teams that figure out those integrations, and then also the POC engineering teams, that, so on behalf of the sales folks that are out there, the equivalent in, in NetApp terminology of, of CPOC, the Customer Proof of Concept Center here in Raleigh, uh, we've got an equivalent team out in Boulder and, and Gear, and we're actually, that was my first meeting uh, as a NetApp employee, was was figuring out, figuring out what to do with with CPOC and POC engineering long term. I saw, I saw the picture of you guys outside of that building. Yes, it was it was weird, <laughs> <laughs> surreal. 
wow, they're actually here. Yeah, they, they let us in the door today. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I saw that you badged into the building, so congratulations. Thank you. Thank no, you. I would imagine that you will very quickly be very in demand, Aaron. Uh, there is a lot of people here at NetApp who are very, very curious about Solid Fire, about integrating with the products, about just doing everything we can to uh, really learn the technology and, and just capitalize on the greatness. Yeah, no, it, it's been super interesting because a, a little bit of history around that. I, I worked for a reseller for a number of years, a very large NetApp reseller, and uh, actually have been involved here at this site. So it, it was actually kind of funny to a lot of emails, a lot of, you know, literally the second my email account went live, I think there was people from Raleigh kind of firing it up of, hey, let's go to lunch or let's go talk about this or let's go find a whiteboard. So yeah, probably my next, I don't know, two to three weeks is going to be nothing but probably, probably figuring out, you know, everyone in Raleigh that has already sent me an email more you, or less you what's going to come. Oh, <laughs> yeah. I know it's going to just snowball from there. I, I know that. And, and we welcome it without a doubt. If you don't get, if you don't find it becoming months, you'll know that you're just doing a really poor job at it. Yes. So, yeah. so do a good job. <laughs> right. All right, Amy, tell us a little bit about yourself for those of peop the people out there who don't know who you are and what you do and the sort of things you've been involved with. Uh, I'm Amy Lewis, and uh, I may have the best NetApp uh, handle ever. Um, what is it? <laughs> yeah, I'm lamey. <laughs> <laughs> so the the inside track on that is your user IDs are our last initial first name. Yeah, sometimes so. they're random actually, and they won't change it unless it's vulgar. And I couldn't convince them that was vulgar <laughs> or misspelled, and mm. nor nor can I convince them about that. So yeah, that's, uh, that's rough. Yeah, welcome. Hilariously rough. <laughs> I was but I was rough. I was trying to get comms ninja at netapp.com, but no no dice no dice. Yeah, that's, I don't know. We'll have to work on that. <laughs> I, think, I don't oh, think they understand the power of that. Oh, we know some people. We can oh. make some stuff. Yeah, we can right. make it happen. Can y'all make that happen? We can try yeah, to make we'll that happen. Up. So uh, I am uh, the director of influence marketing, field marketing, um, for SolidFire, now part of NetApp. Um, I feel like you should have that voice. <laughs> well done. With it. Yeah, well done. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, so we're incredibly excited. I am. Uh, I got a team of incredibly uh, ex energetic grounds up kind of marketing folks. So as I like to say it, we're marketers, but uh, plus Josh. Uh, so Josh Atwell, for those who know. Oh, yeah. It's yeah. like marketing <laughs> plus a rocket science. The ginger squad. Yeah, the ginger squad. Uh, so watch out. <laughs> and we're, we're incredibly excited. So marketing, but we roll with the engineers. And, that, and then everybody goes, oh, okay, you're okay. Yeah, yeah. It's all right. I like wings and beer. See, we're, <laughs> we're tech marketing engineers, so we kind of have that hybrid thing going on too. Yeah, um, we had this conversation this morning where technical marketing – Right means yeah. that we don't get taken seriously by marketing or the engineers. <laughs> yeah, everybody ignores so, us. Yeah. yeah, pretty much. Try it when your title's influence marketing. People are like, oh, that's cute. But it was better than social media marketing. Are you then... currently under the influence marketing? <laughs> yes, I'm under the influence marketing. <laughs> so, so it's just a, a few days since the acquisition closed and all that other stuff. I know you guys, uh, literally, before we came into the podcast room today, you had to stop by the room where you're doing all of your NetApp indoctrination. Do you have any idea how your jobs are changing? Is it still the... The same thing, just with a slightly bluer logo? I, I think it is the same thing, but very quickly figuring out how to scale it mm -hmm. as quickly as possible. Scale um, out is for real. Yeah, be, be, because one of the biggest things, to, so to give everyone a little bit of context, um, Solid Fire, uh, right before the acquisition, was somewhere around the neighborhood of 430 employees worldwide. So um, in Boulder, Colorado, at, at HQ, is about 200, 250 um, and then the rest, of course, kind of spread out uh, across the world. And to go to an organization that is 12,000 and a sales force that is bigger than our entire company, 
um, as you were saying earlier, the requests will come hot and heavy and very fast. And it's going to be very interesting. And that's probably the single biggest challenge is is figuring out how to both ride the rockets and we have a rock or I should say we have a plane and now we have to turn it into a rocket while it's in flight. Um, so it is going to be a little bit of still doing the day jobs plus figuring out how to make it go faster all at the same time. I know. And all of you can appreciate we have a two email accounts, two calendars. I'm joking online that uh, I'm, I'm missing meetings in two places now because I can't keep up with the, uh, that part of it. So, but, but Aaron's right. The, the upside is incredible. So, you know, small, small IT wine that I know everybody can appreciate when you're transitioning between accounts like that and trying to get your, your tech life organized. Your phone tells you what to do as it, as it should. But uh, the opportunity, it's, it's all upside. It's, it's incredible. We're, and I have to say, just personally, thank you, everybody. Uh, the NetApp people have been so incredibly welcoming. Um, just everybody says welcome to NetApp and, and means it, looks you in the eye and means it. And what an incredible reception. I mean, it is uh, not every acquisition goes like that. So thank you personally. It is amazing. Yeah, absolutely. And, and uh, you know, quick aside story, too. So just walking into Beer Bash earlier, it was really interesting, too, of, you know, there is hundreds of people in there during Beer Bash. And it is it was neat to kind of walk in and everyone's kind of waving at you going over here, over here, you know. So the 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 welcome has been incredible and it is certainly going to be a fun ride. Well, I know there is a, a lot of groups inside of NetApp who are very anxious to, to get a hold of you guys, to get a hold of the technology, <laughs> to learn all of these sure. things. Um, so, uh, you know, initial thoughts, any, anything about how, you know, we don't necessarily, it's going to happen, I know, yeah. but how, how do we help you guys, sure. you know, transition? How do we help you guys deal with that deluge? Well, so I'll answer that question, but I'll also kind of throw it into a, uh, with a technical answer and a technical spin all at the same time. Um, <clears throat> one of the biggest things I see is how do we position SolidFire within the existing portfolio? Um, that is the number one question I've received so far. It's not just a brain dump of what is solid fire, but it is putting together the puzzle pieces of how does it fit, right? And, and so what we've been really describing everyone today is, is really NetApp really goes from two product lines to three product lines. You know, the, the, the EF series, the, the AFF series, and now the solid fire. And actually, most people kind of scratch their head and go, why would you need three? Why three all flash? Well, at the end of the day, what happens here is it's actually three different use cases, and they actually complement each other very well and really create a nice, complete portfolio that, that I really haven't seen anywhere in the industry to date. And, and so I'll go through it r real quickly here. So the EF portfolio, the way we've seen it, and again, you have to do remember this is day three, I think, for me. So I'm going <laughs> to, I'm going to, you know, throw this out there and then let everyone kind of, you know, crowdsource the verification here. But, but the EF series is, is really around the idea of use the concept of a dragster, right? A single, single use case go super, super fast kind of thing, right? And then in the middle, you have, have the AFF series where, Really, data services, you know, snap this, flex that is, is kind of the old joke we used to always use. That is where the, the bread and butter of the AFF portfolio will be. And then thirdly, SolidFire, the use case is actually going to be slightly different. It is going to be a combination of the exact opposite of EF. If, if that's like one or two workloads really fast, this is going to be hundreds to thousands of workloads, how do you balance them out? How do you guarantee performance to all of them? A lot of times, you know, people like to throw in a lot of terms of like, you know, first platform, third platform, a lot of these things. 
Where it really fits in is, is a scale-out architecture that is really designed around the service providers where you don't necessarily know what your workload is going to look like and very complementary, quite frankly, to the rest of the portfolio. Yeah, so I think that's a really great statement, right? Uh, so last week we had uh, Andy Grimes on the podcast to talk about, you know, literally the day after the acquisition was closed. And, you know, he kind of gave us his perspective of where Solid Fire fits in the portfolio. But, of course, he's a longtime NetApper. So, you know, I'd love to hear, you know, both Amy and, and Aaron, your your perspective on, you know, really where Solid Fire excels, right? Sure. Why Solid Fire has been such a phenomenal product and, and you know, of course, why NetApp decided to acquire it, and uh, you know how 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 are we helping solve customer problems? Yeah. Would Would you like to go first, or should I? Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to talk for a while, so I'm giving you the opportunity, so I don't hug the mic here. Now, I, I do think actually there's obviously some overlap in all solutions, and you know we competed in some ways, but uh, it makes a lot of sense to me. It really spreads out. Uh, it it. it elongates it it is it fans out the potential total addressable market and and solidfire has been very very strong in the the cloud sort of uh, as a service kind of a, a area um, again I'm, I'm teasing but um, Josh Atwell did just join my team as a developer advocate um, he's our, our weaponized ginger uh, so we're, we're incredibly excited to have him out there you know I just brought these guys some PowerShell solidfire PowerShell uh, stickers. That he is he's out there to to spread that gospel, if you will. And I think it's an area um, that we're incredibly strong in. Not to say, again, this is not a, you know, somebody's weak because we're strong. I just think that is a, a core strength of, of uh, what Solid Fire can provide. We find that the conversations um, in that OpenStack community, in the cloud audience, we tend to have incredibly good and deep conversations. Um, our other secret weapon, John Griffith, we've got some folks who are, um, he's just got a blog out about Docker, we, um, we hit some of the new uh, emerging marketplaces. And it's the advantage of being a very small, nimble company. And I, I think we bring a lot of that energy to um, a very stable, known quantity. I mean, it really is chocolate and peanut butter. It's a, it's a great combination. Yeah. Yeah, I have to throw in. Uh, so I was answering a question on one of the internally, internal mailing address uh, yesterday about, you know, which NetApp products have RESTful APIs and all this. So, of course, I went through the whole list of software and responded back. And it was a distro that hit several thousand people. And immediately, within 30 seconds of this mail going out, one of the Solid Fire Director of Engineering's responded back with, don't forget us. <laughs> and, you know, absolutely, right? You know, I'm, right. In, a, in, in my mind, I'm going, mea culpa, right? You know, absolutely. <laughs> you know, you guys are, are at the forefront of that and enabling customers to do the things that they need to do, yep. uh, you know, through the API-based. And, yeah, and, and, and I think you actually just defined how Solid Fire tends to join a conversation with a, hey, hey, <laughs> yeah. guys, don't forget <laughs> we're us. Not afraid. Right. We're not afraid. We're and, not afraid. And, and to, to, so to add to that, what, what's really interesting about it is, so I've always kind of defined three big benefits to why people have fallen in love with, with Solid Fire and historically bought Solid Fire. And it actually goes to three different audiences as well. So, so on the, the number one is what do the customers want? Well, the customers at the end of the day want a bunch of applications that run seamlessly, right? And, and that is done basically through, again, hundreds to thousands of applications running on, on, on the array with guaranteed performance. And, and there's a, you know, that, that goes into a whole level deep dive of quality of service and LUNs and this and that. And I, I'm not necessarily going to do that here. But, but the idea here is you can put just about anything on the array, give it a performance profile, and be able to just know that it's going to run. 
right? It's a little bit of peace of mind for our customers. So that's the number one benefit. The number two benefit actually is to the developer community. When it we have the idea of just about everything in the array is API-based. So that leads into developer community, that leads into uh, automation and operations aspects. All of these things that, that really allow us to operate at scale. If you're going to take, again, hundreds to thousands of applications and put them on a single array, it's typically a pretty big array. Well, how the hell do you manage it? Oops. Sorry. You can say hell. Oh, I can. <laughs> okay. Sorry. Can we, can we quote the Simpsons here? Yes. How in the hell? Can you talk about hell? I if think you, can't you can say also hell? say ass. Oh. All right, cool. So yeah, those are my two approved George, words. Right. Hashtag George no. Carlin. Glenn, Glenn, what else can we say? <laughs> Uh, you can pretty much say anything. <laughs> no, no, there we go. All right. So, Thanks, so, <laughs> so at the end of the day, right, it's a huge advantage for our developer community. And then the third one is, of course, operations. Because on the operations side, you want the automation, but then you also want the ability to really scale this thing out. And so we ha our, our, the, the back-end architecture is fundamentally very different from anything else in the NetApp portfolio in the fact that it is node-based. Each node has both drives and CPU in it, so you get both performance and capacity in each node. So when you need more of one, you simply add a node, and our nodes are sized, sized differently based on what you want to add. And so you can add, you can remove, you can actually kind of build these, you can take them apart and, and create, you know, split them into two. You have this malleable storage aspect that, that the operations folks just fall in love with. It's like storage Tetris. It is. It's, <laughs> it's very much storage Tetris, without a doubt. And, you know, and another quick funny story about it, too, is you, one of our biggest customers, actually, they, they actually call it FedEx load balancing. They, they have multiple yeah. arrays around the country. Whenever they need capacity at one site, instead of necessarily buying one, they'll first look at all of the operations and they'll go, well, I can remove one node here, throw it in a box, and FedEx it, FedEx it over to the other site and just do balancing that way. And it's, it, we hear it, those stories. That one, I love that story. It's a yeah, pretty good story, yeah. It's yeah. E very you, modular. It brings modular. unique things to, to the actual operations aspects um, around the, you know, the behind the scenes that the techies really like. So if I'm a NetApp customer today, right, NetApp's got this new, shiny, uh, very red-colored toy, uh, what type of use cases should I be looking at, right? When, when should I be considering, you know, something like a solid fire versus an, uh, an all-flash fast versus an E-series, et cetera? Yeah, that's a fantastic question. I would break it down to a couple different use cases, actually. Um, so the number one, obviously, I already covered was, I'll, I'll say service providers are, are enterprises that want to be a service provider, right? The, the idea yeah. of, of multi-tenancy, of anytime you have a bunch of different applications or application profiles. And it doesn't even necessarily have to be different applications. You know, it could be production and Q&A and test dev and all that all in one environment and, and giving, of course, production more, more of the, the, the horsepower, if you will. Uh, than, than, and less on development on the array. There's lots of use cases around that when you want to consolidate a lot of applications. That's certainly the number one use case we have out there, uh, you know, the as-a-service, if you will, and I'm, I'm using air quotes around when I, when I say that. Um, and then certainly the, the other one is, is uh, environments where you're using some of the certainly more cutting-edge technologies. When, when you're dealing with, with Docker, with Flocker, with, um, you know, with OpenStack, and some of these others that, that you're embracing open source, and a lot of the aspects of embracing that open source is actually managing the storage through a, a programmable API. Which I have to say, that makes me, it, I try not to giggle when we have Docker, Flocker, et cetera, and it all starts to rhyme, and I want to play the pharmaceutical or startup game. Yeah. yeah I kind of want to do Dr. Seuss. Yeah, hold on. Wait. You guys got, you have a Flocker integrate? We do. Did I hear that right? Yes. 
Yeah, and, and I would argue Ooh. that it's. Um, <laughs> yeah. So uh, it, don't yeah. gloss over that. It also, uh, it also comes back to application uh, architecture, right? Mm-hmm. Not just necessarily whether or not you've adopted a new technology, Docker, right, or right. a newish technology, uh, a Docker or anything like that. But it's you know very much um, SolidFire was designed from the beginning to incorporate those APIs, right? Yes. To have everything be accessible through that manner. And I know you guys have fantastic OpenStack integration, for example. So it really fits well, from what I've seen, into just that model of yep. cloud-native applications, to steal the term from and it, VMware. And it doesn't always need to be cloud-native, though. So I'll give you a for instance. Um, so so our group actually, we, we kind of incubated the PowerShell module, and then our product engineering group took it over and finished it. And what we actually did is we worked with a third party. Um, uh, Josh Atwell built out the stubs, and then we worked with a third party to do the integration, and then we brought it in-house to actually finish it and publish it. Well, the PowerShell integration actually turned out to be super easy and was actually finished ahead of schedule and under budget because they scoped it all out, but they scoped it all, scoped it all out based off of what they've done with different storage vendors in the market. And then they kind of looked at our API guide and went, oh, this is actually going to be pretty easy. And so they actually finished in like half the time that they had done other integrations in the past for uh, for some of the competitors, quite frankly. So it's things like that, that, you know, t- being able to take things either off the shelf and, and bolt them on or just build them from scratch. Uh, that's really where we shine, without a doubt. I have often said you can judge the underpinnings of an architecture by its PowerShell implementation <laughs> because it exposes it exposes that stuff. If you've got an ugly API and and it's really ugly and there's a lot of hacks, then your your commandlets are going to be slow and you'll have a lot of issues around pipeline automation. If it just flows and everything works, that means the underlying platform is was built correctly. Yes. Agreed. Agreed. And it goes back to, so I'm, I'm going to get slightly fanboy for a second. Um, our, our, our CEO, uh, Dave Wright, where, you know, where did he come from? He did Jungle Disk and sold Jungle Disk off to Rackspace and wanted to go off and build his next thing. Well, in being at Rackspace for a while, one of the big problems he had was, was how do you do cloud storage? And, and if I had to do it over as a developer, what do I want storage to look like in a true cloud environment, right? And the number one thing he wanted, well, actually two of the big things he wanted, was the, the APIs and the ability to, to fully programmable automation and then make it scale out so that you never have to talk to more than one system if you don't have to. Uh, and sorry, just a, I'll have a fangirl moment. If anybody on the podcast hasn't uh, listening to the podcast hasn't heard Dave Wright speak before, I would really encourage you. There's some great YouTube work that he's done. Um, it is it's this cool thing when your your CEO, you know, our former CEO is uh, is that much of a geek's geek, and uh, it and people don't expect it. You know, they're like, oh well, he's he's got a collared shirt and uh, he can just roll. So I really encourage anybody who is not familiar with Solid Fire to go check out some of his. YouTube videos because it's really amazing. Nobody explains it like Dave. I think it's something with the name Dave because we have our own Dave, Mr. Dave Hitz. Yes, yeah, we do. Listening to him speak was really inspirational as well. When Dave and Dave are on stage, it's like, so, drop the mic. So uh, another funny fanboy moment. I was not there for it, but but um, he actually came out for the announcement uh, out to Boulder, Colorado. And, um, Dave Hitz did. Yes, Dave Hitz did. And, and watching the, the Dave and Dave's kind of geek out in the corner and then like the halo of engineers geeking out <laughs> around them. Like it the was, penumbra. It was very like like the ripples in the ocean kind of thing, like just going out and going, and everyone's going, oh my God, the Daves are talking. Like, <laughs> <laughs> uh, what I've noticed about Hitz is uh, 
It's kind of like a reverse Samson. Like when the shoes come off, he becomes more powerful. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. So you guys are from, you know, you're based in Boulder, Solifier is, but you're based also in RTP as, as working. We do have a big game coming up. So are you kind of conflicted there? I mean, this Super Bowl thing? Not even a chance. Not I'm a native a North Carolina. I'm like the rare native North Carolinian, so it's 100% Panthers. Uh, it, uh, full disclosure, the football I watch is the one that's actually played with feet. But on occasion, I'll watch an American football game. So uh, Footy. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, more footy like, for she's me. She's a footy. <laughs> and so so what I will I, I cheer for the Panthers when they're on, but I completely admit I'm I'm born and raised Philadelphia. Oh, oh. so you're an Eagles guy. Yes. Oh, okay. So, yeah. I have, you to, can adopt, I have to apologize again. <laughs> um, you can adopt like the, the Panthers if you want. Yes. I mean, right now the Eagles well, aren't. Well, no. I, yeah. so, so as part of my orientation today, um, so there's apparently a big bet going between the Solid Fire folks and the NetApp folks between oh, Raleigh yes. and Denver. Um, yeah, I was instigated into the bet at lunch today, and I didn't even know exactly what it was for, and then I found out later. But, yeah, so I'm on the Panthers side of the bet against all of my Solid Fire crew. So. Mm. It's going to be interesting. Are they just going to put you in a room and whoever emerges is the victor? I, I don't even know. Like, I'm, I'm serious <laughs> when I say this. I'm not even sure. Everyone keeps talking about the bet, but I, I don't even know what it is. <laughs> all, of, all of Boulder is unfortunately going to have to go buy Panthers jerseys here. Uh, <laughs> oh. That's going to hurt. Uh, yeah, that'll hurt a little bit. Yeah, I'm Southern, so I just keep smiling a lot and blessing hearts and hoping nobody <laughs> knows. Bless your heart. <laughs> You call everybody sugar. I know. No, and you know, good. I mean, we'll, we can talk off air, but yeah, bless your hearts a little bit. The bigger the smile and the bless your heart, yeah. the more you should run. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. So Amy, Aaron, thank you so much for stopping by and talking to us a little bit, taking time out of your busy Friday afternoon. I know it's been a whirlwind. I, well, and I just want to say I have complete podcast envy right now because we we have a little podcast for, for i've seen software. the little microphone i've seen yeah it. it's like a little handheld microphone. I'm, li- I'm gonna we have do that a- too we have that for trade shows but okay i'm gonna do a, i'm gonna do a little before and after <laughs> before acquisition here was our studio yeah. and now i'm it, moving in guys yeah, you can I'm move sorry. in you can totally move in <laughs> we share this room with other people so if you want to do your own thing you can the, the wi-fi works in here the wi-fi works in here <laughs> Which is better than my house half the time. Yeah. yeah no kidding. No <laughs> kidding. So, um, yeah. So, podcast, of course, is Geek Whisperers, right? Oh, yeah. Geek Whisperers. We also have, yeah, yeah. That's my personal podcast okay. for sure. But, yeah. It, um, we uh, also at Solid Fire have a little little podcast called Elements of Solid Fire. And, you know, we've got the little Taz Cam handheld mic just to podcast geek out for a minute for everybody. Yeah. These guys have a rocking studio. We, we've been tweeting pictures this whole time. And it's pretty nice. Yeah. I can't, I can't lie. It's, uh, it's pretty sweet. Yep. Yeah. We got very lucky. Yes. Yeah, yeah, but Very no, lucky. seriously, John Troyer is going to make me, he's my, John Troyer and Matt Brenner, who I podcast with as the Geek Whispers, and he's he's the audiophile, so he's going to be like, Amy, you have to you have to drive to RTP Badge Inn and go podcast from there for the Geek Whispers and from a, now on. And a, a quick side story, feel free to to cut this if, if it goes too long, but the Elements of Solid Fire, where, where did it come from? So it's actually pretty cool internally. What we do is uh, the OS behind Solid Fire is called Element OS. And the very first version was hydrogen. And then we went through and we go through the periodic table of elements. And then each version that comes out, everyone gets, everyone in the company gets um, a little uh, cube 
that is made that looks like the periodic table of elements. And so cool. and we just kind of keep rolling through all of them. Uh, you know, fluorine's going to be coming out before too much longer, and then neon and sodium. And so we just kind of keep rolling through all of them, and we wanted to kind of add that to to the external community as well. And and my, my kids keep asking me, when are you getting another cube? And I'm like, I don't know. Engineering keeps pushing it back, but <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> Do you get the Animaniacs stu- song stuck in your head? Do you ever, did you ever watch the Animaniacs? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah the, the periodic table. Yes. Yeah. That was awesome. <laughs> if you guys aren't old enough to to know what I'm talking about, Google it, and uh, you'll, you'll you'll see what I'm talking about. See but now yeah. you guys now you guys just look so smart. We've just got like cubes full of empty beer bottles. <laughs> <laughs> we're t- we're just total lushes over here, and you guys are like oh oh no we got table nerdy nerdy nerdy. Well, and it, it's a st- it, it is a little bit of an immediate um, how long you've been with the company. Because there, there is, I want to say, only like maybe twenty hydrogen cubes in the company. I do have cube um, envy. I'm not going to lie. Something like that. I, you know, I've got carbon, nitrogen, um, and I forget the other one. Um, but it's Nitro- nitrogen party of one. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so it, it is interesting because you you see folks with the earlier cubes, and you're just kind of like, oh, you've been here a long time. And they just added a few new elements. I'm a chemistry geek, so they just added a few more. So good wow. times. Are they going to hand out actual lithium? Well, what? sure. Who doesn't? <laughs> <laughs> That'll be. We can have a joint beer brewing session. Yeah, We've got a brewer on staff too. With a lot of lot of cultural. I would recommend mixing that with beer bash. Don't that'd you be, think? It'd be bad. Yeah, come on. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So you can find uh, Amy Lewis on Twitter, of course, at Coms Ninja, and you can find Aaron Delp at Aaron Delp. Yep. I'm, I'm imagining. Real like creative that. there. I know. <laughs> All right, so that was Amy Lewis and Aaron Delp. Uh, Now let's go ahead and get back to the deep dive here. We'll start off with Andy Banta talking a little bit about Solid Fire and the things he's been doing with it. So actually, uh, this this is a nice segue into talking a little bit about the Solid Fire architecture. Uh, Here we go. Yeah. One of the reasons that Solid Fire chose iSCSI is iSCSI is pretty much the only storage protocol that gives you a scale-out capability where you can uh, just take uh, add more nodes into your storage system and I, you don't need to do anything with iSCSI to make those nodes visible to whoever's consuming the storage uh, so it's it's one of those things where you go and you set up your uh, ESX box or your Microsoft box and tell it hey here's where your iSCSI storage is and from the solid fire perspective it's uh, the storage administrator simply needs to go provision a new node slide it into the rack plug it in and you don't need to do anything with your host side. That's one of the, the principal concepts of uh, solid fire and, and scale-out storage. Um, I, I know that Jeremiah can go into a little bit more detail on scale-out as well. So how, how does it pick up the, the new initiator and target piece? Like, is it is it dynamic, or does the solid fire advertise it, or does the client uh, just so, scan it? So I can go as deep into this as you want. So um, we have what's called a... Um, virtual IP address, uh, storage virtual IP address in the system, and that is where you go off and you discover your iSCSI targets. Um, With iSCSI, all you simply need to do is go ask an IP address, hey, what targets do you have available? And it's supposed to respond and say, hey, here's what's available. So iSCSI has this this concept called a login redirect. So pretty much when a host tries to log into that storage virtual IP address, address, what SolidFire is going to do is it's going to say, hey, you actually want to log into this other address instead, and that will actually be an address on one of the other nodes. 
Oh, okay, so we, yeah. we have something similar with our NAS protocols where it's like a redirect like that to give data locality. Is it kind of like that as well, like where you have a locality functionality, or is it a Lua taking care of that? Uh, no, it's not a Lua taking care of it at all. This is a, uh, actually baked into the iSCSI protocol, and this is the same type of concept that any uh, scale-out storage uses. So like your Dell Ecologix uh, several years ago and your left hand several years ago used the same concept. Uh, Isilon uses it to some, so, some extent, uh, but that's... That's the way that uh, you know iSCSI tied in with scale out from day one. Yep. So if we if we take the iSCSI, right, we take the idea that there's an IP address that is the the storage cluster, and the storage cluster can have any number of nodes. So behind that that uh, that virtual storage IP, you can have anywhere from four to a hundred solid fire nodes. Each of those nodes has its own IP. What happens is when that first connection is made from the ESX cluster, from the ESX host, from the from the Microsoft box, the Linux box, whatever it is that's connecting up to the storage array, um, it's going to ask, you know, what are the volumes that I have? When it goes to mount that volume, what it's going to get is the login redirect that Andy said that Andy was talking about, where rather than having to proxy everything through one IP address for every request from every host for every volume that comes through the cluster, at that point, iSCSI just says, by the way, your volume lives here, and it lives on this node, and from now on, until for whatever reason this times out, whether we move the volume as part of the load balancing, which we can talk about in a little bit, um, or whether the node were to fail, um, I want you to go directly to that node in order to be able to talk to the volume. What this gives us is a couple things. One is there's there's a, a, a natural way to manage the traffic that's coming into a single IP address, right? We can, as we scale out the nodes, we can also scale out where that traffic is going from an IP perspective, rather than having to funnel everything through um, the one IP address on the front end. The second thing that it gives us the ability to do is that we can dynamically look at the performance of every volume on the array. Mm. And as we're seeing the, the, the performance on the array, both from a capacity standpoint and from a performance standpoint, we can redistribute and load balance those across all of the nodes in the cluster. We do this, obviously, whenever there's a node failure, whenever, whenever there's a drive failure, we can take volumes and we can move them around. Uh, but we do this in the background all the time. So if we had a volume that was created and was assigned to a node, it was presented out to a host, and that happened to be a log volume for a database. And so the I.O. on it is pretty high. The number of transactions is pretty high. We can take that volume and put it on a node where it's going to be best capable of being serviced and then move it around as the volumes inside the, uh, inside the cluster are built out and as the number of volumes increase. One of the things from a solid fire architecture standpoint, and when we're talking to customers about where does this fit and where does this not fit, um, you know, we thrive in environments where there are dozens or hundreds or thousands of individual volumes. And for comparison's sake, I spent uh, you know three and a half years or so uh, at VCE and we sold you know mid-range storage all over the place. And when you looked at the total number of volumes that we we're being presented off of that, relatively low. Even on even on fairly large systems, we're talking you know 15, 20, 25 volumes. In VMware environments, those are largely data stores. They've got lots of VMs that are attached to them. Um, from a solid fire standpoint, we see customers with thousands of volumes. Right? We see uh, OpenStack environments where every instance that gets created on the yeah. entire sec on the entire setup is an individual volume with individual QoS settings on the storage array. From our standpoint, 
we have the ability to distribute those volumes across. We have the iSCSI stack that allows us to map through those volumes directly to the hosts that are asking for them. The more volumes we have, the more efficient the entire system becomes. The easier, uh, you know, the more effective QoS is, but also the more effective all of the background processes are for how we distribute data, how we lay down data, and how we guarantee the um, ability for the nodes to be able to service the volumes that they own. Right, and to dig into that just a little bit deeper, uh, so just to explain how the iSCSI protocol handles this, so if we actually move a volume from one node to another, um, all we do is we drop the iSCSI session for that volume, and at that point, the host will actually go back to the virtual IP address on on our cluster and say, hey, I want to talk to this volume, and we'll simply say, we'll simply redirect it to a different node at that point. So is there no concept of a Lua in, in, in a solid fire deployment? Nope. Nope. Absolutely not. Wow. No, it's, uh, it's iSCSI obviates the need for Lua. It's so funny because I got to be honest, I'm, I'm sitting here like I'm learning right now um, um, and, and I'm comparing and contrasting this against uh, the way ONTAP does it. Mm -hmm. And I swear, like, Justin, you nailed it at the top uh, when you made your, your, your comment. The way that you're describing how SolidFire handles block protocol access inside the Element OS system it's almost identical to how NAS protocols work inside data on tap. Yeah, right. it, it is. And, and I think that part of that is because once you start talking about distributed anything, be it yeah. file systems or block protocols or storage OSs, uh, there's just there are ways that that works effectively and efficiently, and there are ways that it doesn't. And so when uh, I spend a lot of time going into customers and we're doing a series, we're in the middle of doing a series of tech target events where we bring prospects in, and almost the entire talk track is kind of setting up the expectation that this is going to be completely different yeah. from every legacy storage array you've ever used. And the comparison between a dual controller storage array and a distributed cluster, you know, node-based storage array, it's it's not fair on one hand, right? Because it is more complex. You know, the solid fire operating system is significantly more complicated, not just to integrate in the iSCSI features that, that Andy's talking about, yeah. but everything, how we distribute data, how do we, how do we protect data? How do we hash data so that we make sure that we can validate that the, the block is what the block is supposed to be? All of that work is really, really complicated when you start looking at not knowing how many nodes are going to be participating in that. But it's also, um, it's different from an operational standpoint. It's different from a programmatic standpoint. Uh, it's different from how we present, uh, you know, the, the array itself to the environment and to the the integration. So we spend a lot of time walking customers through the fact that these aren't necessarily bad things. It's not a this is good and this is bad. But for these use cases, when you get away from, I need five VMFS data stores yeah. that I'm going to put 30 VMs on a piece. And if I am worried about storage contention, I'm just going to go buy another storage array. Right. Once we start moving out of that into a world where I'll buy capacity when I need it. I'll buy capacity and provision performance completely separately from one another. When we get into those environments, whether it's NFS, whether it's um, you know whether it's the block-based scale-out that SolidFire does, there's just some uh, there's some precepts there that if you don't have them in place, you're just going to fall on your face at some point. So right. with and, that, and I, actually, uh, so I was hoping Jeremiah you'd go into a little bit more detail on the, the scale-out um, principles, which, which is basically when you when you add more nodes to your system. You're adding both capacity and throughput at the same time, and we have a handful of different models. So you can you can choose whether it's uh, throughput or capacity that you're attempting to add. 
this iteration. But that's that's one of the really principal con uh, concepts of solid fire and, and how scale out works is that uh, you don't you don't add more trays to add performance or more controllers or yeah. more trays to add capacity or more uh, controllers to increase increase performance. You just add more nodes as they come along. Yeah. And uh, I also want to mention that one of the reasons that we're looking at VVOL so heavily is to get away from this big VMFS idea and, and allow people to allow individual VMs to have their own volumes. Oh, I, I, it, it makes perfect sense. I mean, just looking at what, what, what we've learned with our own VVOL's implementation, like we had to take, you know, our uh, data on tap is is that uh, legacy approach to SAM-based protocols that, that, that we're describing SolidFire is not. Uh, they, these are two very, very different uh, operating systems. And, you know, on tap we have traditional initiators, and, and that limits our ability to scale up a block on tap system because you just start to get into pathing issues uh, whereas you've solved pathing issues just by abstracting how it gets there, which that, that leads me to have all sorts of follow-on questions about, like, can I create tenant target initiators, and how is the tenancy controlled? How do I do multiple sessions? Like, how do I get more? So many questions that we're not going to get to. Um, oh, we can get well, to we them. We can actually get into a bunch of those. It's um, So uh, one of the other uh, concepts of the solid fire storage is the, the shared nothing. So there's no... There's no master node. Well, actually, there there is a a master node at any given time, but it's we use a distributed database that's uh, that has a, basically uses a quorum type setup among all the various different nodes, and it will choose what it considers the master node right now, and that's the the node that will actually serve the um, the virtual IP address and also uh, serve the management functions for the the array. Uh, and if if for some reason that node goes away. Uh, the other nodes are very quickly going to realize, hey, we don't have a master anymore. Let's choose a new master yeah, and get it up and running. Yeah. So uh, I want to take this opportunity to, to kind of take it down a level. Uh, sure. So below access and down into, you know, how is how is data protection, data layout done? Because I think that's where a lot of questions happen yep. at, at, at this stage, right, is, you know, okay, I, I, I you know, a lot of customers, I think a lot of uh, even NetApp employees, right, the sales force out there, are saying, you know, okay, we, we understand the concept of scale out, but yep. how are, in this instance are we protecting data? Gotcha. How is it how is it being laid out? So uh, first part is there's no raid. There's no concept of a disk group, there's no concept of an aggregate, there's no concept of anything that you would have to manually do to uh, put disks into a pool that you would then overlay with a data protection scheme or anything like that. So uh, it's a little bit simpler in that every disk that's added into the array becomes part of the pool, and the performance of that disk, the performance of the node that that disk is in, and the capacity of that disk get added into the pool to be able to be allocated out. From a data from a data protection standpoint, we do uh, we do everything in line. So the data comes in, we break it into pieces, we hash it, right? We make sure that we always know where that where that data is and what it's supposed to be. We go through and do you know, the initial compression, we do the deduplication, we write it to a node, and we write it to a, an NVRAM card that's in the node, so we still haven't ever touched an SSD at this point. Yep. We write it into the NVRAM card, and then we mirror it to a second node, and at that point, once we've got it committed to two different nodes, we consider it written. And that's when we, you know, we respond back to the host and say, that block was written, everything's good, you know, continue on with the rest of your process. 
At that point, we're going to then go do all of the background processing. We're going to package everything up into nice big one meg chunks. We're going to find the SSDs that we're going to lay them down on. We're going to be nice and gentle with the SSDs, which is why we can guarantee no matter what workload you're doing and no matter what your use case is, you're never going to run into wear issues with the SSDs. Um, even even with the um, you know not using the the, the dual ported and and super expensive yeah. enterprise SSDs. Um, you know, the guarantee from SolidFire is if you ever run into a, a diskware issue, we're just going to give it to you because the process by which we write data is so gentle. So what you end up with is that every block on the cluster has two copies, and those two copies can't be on the same node, right? So that if you have a disk failure, we're not, we're not um, you know, recovering anything. We're not writing anything out of a parity stripe. We're just reprotecting the data that used to be there. Right, so if you lose a disk, we're going to reprotect the data that used to be on that disk and distribute it ra- across the rest of the node. The fun part is the more nodes there are in the cluster, the faster that reprotect process is. Hmm. If we were to lose the largest disk that we sell in the largest node that we sell in the smallest cluster that we sell that's at full utilization, so literally worst case scenario, yeah. we're going to reprotect everything that's on that disk in less than 10 minutes. And the first four minutes of that is sitting there pinging you the disc going, are you really dead? <laughs> are you really, really dead? No, seriously, one more time. Come on back, because if you come back, I don't have to do anything. All right, fine. Then we kick the disc out. Then we reprotect the day that was there. Works the exact same way for a node. What this means is it's totally unattended. The customer doesn't have to go reinitiate the raid build. The customer doesn't have to allocate out spares. The customer doesn't have to take the hit up front. Yeah. while they're reading from parity, and then put a drive in and take the hit while the drive is rebuilding. All of that goes away. All that happens is if a disk goes away, you lose the capacity and performance of that disk, and we reprotect that data elsewhere. If you lose a node, exact same thing. You lose the capacity and performance of that node. We reprotect the data elsewhere. Over the, over the life of the product, it means a significantly smaller amount of time at impact, right? Time at risk. Um, there's no, you know, there, there's never a worry that, you know, how many spares do I have in this group that can be allocated out for this type? And are they the right speed and the same size? We wanted to make that part of it as, as dead simple as possible, knowing that the benefit that we had is every time we add a node, we add CPU and RAM. Every time we add a node, we add, ba- we add bandwidth. Every time we add a node, we add additional disks that can play in that rebuild process so that we get a, we get a, a cluster that is very much able to take care of itself. I, I, I hate the phrase self-healing. I feel like that's one of those ones that, um, you know, somebody came up with a good idea and then every storage vendor on the planet stole it. Uh, our idea with this is just I don't want to have a storage administrator get a page saying yeah. your your array is going to be at risk or your array is going to be at low performance until you go do something or until you let somebody into the data center. Particularly in some of the large environments that we play in, you know, go, replace the if, if SSDs fail, like just queue all those up and replace them at the end of the week. Right there's no need to there's no need to do that in order to protect the storage array. That's what the software does for you. So I'm curious then, um, and and I don't know if you know this off the top of your head, but but I have to ask just because it's burning sure. me up inside. I got to know. Um, use, using uh, uh, physical redundant copies in no distribution for the data protection tier, 
you know, we start off with 50% efficiency because you need half the capacity for, for parity, but then you're going to get back some of that through your efficiency. So I'm curious, in your field-deployed systems, like on average, what's your, what's your usable capacity? Um, so the, usab- the, the flash market has made the question of I know. what's your usable yeah. capacity it, really interesting. Some of the vendors will quote raw only, which is, um, which is kind of the, the, the baseline that all of us do. Like yeah. uh, uh, when we talk to customers uh, about the storage arrays, we'll talk about once we take out the overhead, right? Once we take out the, the Helix data protection, here's your raw capacity that you have to be able to use. Even if you're doing something that, that is completely undedupable, completely uncompressible, you're going to always have this much raw capacity. Then on top of that, we have essentially the same dedupe numbers that everybody else in the industry yep. is going to have. Here's the fun part, though. Um, most of those dedupe numbers are based off of a mix of one, maybe two or three workloads. Right, it might be two different types of databases. It might be, um, you know, in a virtualized environment. It might be a couple different types of VMs that are going to be running on that virtualized environment. In a solid fire environment, where I'm, I'm begging you to drive as many workloads, consolidate as many storage arrays down there, because I've got plenty of performance and capacity. And yeah. the QoS, which we haven't talked about yet, gives me the ability to guarantee those things that I'm presenting out to you. We get a really cool blend of of efficiencies that you wouldn't normally get on a storage array. For example, every flash company loves VDI, right? Why do we love VDI? Because you can dedupe the living crap out of oh, it. Oh, yeah. Makes, makes that raw capacity look an awful lot bigger when you get done, right? But what else are you going to run on the storage array that's running your 10,000-seat VDI implementation? Well, it, it, now, now, exactly. now you start to get into Nothing. a very complicated conversation about fault domains. Exactly. Well, fault domains and what happens if I have a boot storm and yeah. how do I... Right. So so when we talk to customers, typically they're, they have a storage array for their databases and a storage array for their VDI workloads. And they base the ROI and the total cost of ownership of the database array on the efficiencies they're getting off of that. And then the exact same array has a completely different ROI and TCO because of the efficiencies they're getting off of their VDI. And it just makes it, it makes it far more complicated than it needs to be in a solid fire environment where the entire cluster is a dedupe domain. Whether it's four nodes or a hundred nodes, everything on it is in the same dedupe pool. Everything gets compressed. If I can blend, if you're the 40x that you're getting, the 60x that you're getting from your VDI implementation yeah. with the 4x you know, the three and a half X that you're getting from your, uh, from your Oracle deployments and promise you that even when you have a, a, you know, a recompose or even when you have a bootstorm on the VDI side that you're never, ever going to touch the latency of the responses off of those Oracle databases, now that efficiency number across both of those platforms looks an awful lot more interesting than it did before. Yeah. So the the math is the math, right? And and uh, you know anybody who says that they've got a mousetrap that is significantly better when it comes to dedupe and compression is probably trying to sell you something. Our job is to be as good as we possibly can for every individual workload and then give you the tools to be able to consolidate as many of those workloads as you want to onto a cluster and make that aggregate efficiency across all of them better than it would ever be if you delivered each of those services on a separate uh, on a separate array. Better efficiency, not just in the dedupe and compression, but in the spare drives and in the how do I get more capacity and performance into my VDI environment 
versus getting it into my Oracle environment, right? There's so much efficiency that can be had there just because the architecture is unified underneath it that customers today aren't seeing out of the dual controller arrays, be they all flash or, or hybrid, that they're deploying. And that's where we take the really cool architecture and all of the stuff under the hood, and we turn it into a use case for customers that says, um, you know, I'll be a great VDI platform for you. You put VDI and SQL and Oracle and Mongo and uh, yeah. OpenStack and VMware and and you know Microsoft and all of these things onto the uh, onto the array together. I'm going to be massively more simple to operate. I'm going to be massively more simple for you to orchestrate against um, for your operations teams. But right. I'm also going to be much much more efficient in how it is that we use the capacity and performance that you paid for. I get it. I get yeah. it. I get it. Yeah. Here, so think of it, think no, of it no, this no. way. Okay. A great analogy. Yeah. Uh, about seven years ago. We all built bespoke servers for every workload in the data center. Absolutely. Right? Yep. And uh, I worked at a service provider out of Charlotte, uh, ran their managed services platform. We had, I think, 17 different um, SKUs for HP ProLiant servers. Some of them were database servers. Some of them were Active Directory controllers, right? Um, maintenance was a pain. God forbid we had to reboot a, a, a server. A company came along and said, this is really dumb. You don't need servers, you need CPU and RAM. And so if we give you the ability to provision CPU and RAM independently in whatever ratio makes sense for that server, if we give you the ability to pool the CPU and RAM of the hardware underneath it, we can do all sorts of fun stuff with how do we do protection, how do we move workloads around, how do we do maintenance on the hardware, right? VMware changed how we did everything in the data center because it got us to focus on the resources that we were actually consuming, not the hardware that sat under it. When we look at a solid fire array or any sort of clustered storage array, particularly with the QoS capabilities, what we're trying to say to customers is you're not buying a storage array. You're buying capacity and performance. And our job is to let you put the capacity and performance together in whatever ratios make sense for the workload, protect it, where we need to, to make sure that nobody ever touches the capacity and performance that you've put in there, and then pool the, the hardware that sits underneath it so that when you need more of either of those resources, you don't go buy another bespoke storage system. You just put the node of the appropriate size into the cluster, increase the pools where they need to, and then provision it out. It's no different from that original uh, value proposition that we all got from VMware, where as systems administrators, we looked around and went, holy crap. Like that's, you're right. That's exactly what it is that we need. If we can deliver that same thing on the storage side so that rather than buying hardware for storage and hardware for servers, we're just buying hardware to deliver the four resources that workloads need, then the work becomes how well do we integrate it? Then the work becomes how well do we provide data services around it so that it works in a, in a business context and delivers on the business value. And that's something that we could never do in a traditional architecture. Yeah. And if we want to do that from a software standpoint, um, if we want to do that from a hardware standpoint, uh, you know, the, the dirty secret is that the smallest solid fire array I can ever sell you has twice as much CPU and RAM as any dual controller array that's ever been sold. <laughs> right? And, and it allows me to do stuff. And it's, yeah. not a, um, it's not a good or bad. It's just that's the, that's the joy Right there's a lot of there's a lot of trade-offs there, but that's the joy of the multi-node architecture is that in a you know 20-node cluster, which is you know probably right about average for where we see uh, solid fire customers grow to, just think of the horsepower. 
Like just think of the things that we can do from a software standpoint because we have so much bandwidth, because we have so much CPU and RAM in there. And if we can turn that into concrete value for customers, be it through multi-tenancy, be it through QoS, be, be it through whatever uh, replication uh, cloud backup, data at rest encryption, all of those things, we've got so much horsepower to play with that it makes it easy. Right, right. And I, I mean, it, it really is the concept of, uh, of virtualizing the storage just the way VMware virtualized CPU and RAM. Um, I, I did want to dig a little bit and more into a couple of things Jeremiah said, and he just kept running and running with it. So I, <laughs> I, I'm going to backtrack a little bit. So uh, so the really important, a couple of really important parts are the, the um, dedupe is, um, you know, cluster-wide dedupe. Uh, it's it's actually done in line when, when stuff comes in. So as Jeremiah was talking about, uh, we'll write stuff to NVRAM, and then we'll start doing stuff. On it. As soon as we realize that that's a block we already have, we can just uh, dispose of it in NVRAM, and we'll maintain the metadata that says, yes, for this volume, this block is here. So we actually have a very distinct uh, difference between the metadata and the block data. Uh, in our system, and actually, we use the metadata to identify the volume. And when we were talking about the volumes moving from one place to another to do load balancing or whatever, actually, what's moving is just the metadata for that volume. Um, the block data will be spread the way Jeremiah was talking about with the the double helix. Uh, you know, never uh, same block being written on the same node twice. But since we dedupe it. There's no concept of that block actually being tied to any metadata. It could be that 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 one block is pointed to by, you know, five different sets of metadata or forty different sets of metadata if you're in a VDI environment, and it makes no sense to actually migrate that block to be anywhere near the metadata. Um, we also do some pretty interesting tricks with the metadata to handle um, cloning and snapshotting. Where, in that case, all you really need to do is is copy the metadata or um, in some cases, uh, we can actually use the same metadata and just realize by, by looking at it in a tree structure what blocks in that metadata have changed. So we end up with a situation of, of never actually having to write the same block to disk twice. And um, we actually also do inline compression. So when we, we get a block in, it gets compressed and you know compacted into this one megabit chunk that we'll eventually write. Um, and we have a base compression algorithm that we use when it comes in. And then since we have the CPU horsepower, we, we will actually go back through later on and look at a block and say, hey, does this compression algorithm compress it more? If so, we'll oh, compress it more. Yeah, yeah the, the background process is, you know, one of the... One of the cool things that solves many problems and gives us some opportunities is, uh, you know, there's lots of talk about garbage collection and where does it happen and this, that, and the other thing. All fud, but yeah. Yeah, well, um, you know, there's there's a good reason to do garbage collection. The question is more just the mechanics around it, but it's I'm, just I'm, one small, small part of that. Yeah, in 2016, no vendor has a faulty garbage collection implementation. This isn't a real problem anymore. Right, and... and you know, there are trade-offs with everything. In our case, what we have is not just the garbage collection, but we've got yeah. a recycling process that runs in the background on all of the nodes all of the time. Okay. And it does a bunch of different stuff, right? It does hash validation so that right. we Actually, don't... We, we're, we're from Boulder, so we called it a composting algorithm. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. It... I don't know. You're from Boulder. I mean, it's still hash, right? I mean... <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> 
Heyo. I don't no, that's a completely different thing. Dad joke? <laughs> yeah. Dad joke. Dad joke check. So this this uh this composting uh, process that we're doing in the background. We're looking at all of the blocks. We're we're picking them up. We're compacting them. You know, we're pushing them back into one meg chunks and laying them down cleanly so that we're not um, we're not. There's no hot spots on the drives. Like all of this is running in the background as just normal matter. Of course, this is what the storage yeah. OS is doing. One of the things that we found we could do with uh, with no impact at all to the customer, right? Because it's not active data that's being read, it's just data that's stored on disk, is when we pick this up and we rehash it and we put it back into a one meg chunk and we lay it down, why not recompress it? Right? Yeah. Why not have why not have multiple compression algorithms that will work better, right? They're higher costs, so we may not want to do them in line when the data comes in. But when we pick it up and look at it, why not run through a couple different uh, um, compression algorithms, and if you get better compression, if you get better efficiency out of it, then let's keep that one, use that in the one megabit chunk and lay it back down, and if right. not, so we have the original block, we can just discard the new one, uh, and we don't lose anything in the process. Right, so if you're if you're Delta sad hand, then job one is to uh, actually recompress it into something that's better. Fascinating, Matt. Yeah. So, I, I, so, so I, and I have a couple of questions as well. Right, go go ahead, Glenn. Well, I was just going to make the comment that, that um, there really is kind of like a fruit space going on here. And, and, and what I mean by that is, you know, yes, uh, we're talking about uh, the iSCSI protocol and the fiber channel protocol. And we're talking about using NAND-based SSDs as the actual persistence tier uh, and NVRAM. And all of these components are, are incredibly similar. Uh, but, but the way that the complete system has been put together... It really is apples and oranges. Like you're, they they accomplish the same goal, but how they accomplish it is so wildly different that you really do have to have that next level conversation yeah. to figure out you know what where, where well, what's appropriate they, when. But we even came at it from different angles. Oh right? yeah, almost, totally. So yeah. almost every other storage platform on the planet, right? And and for NetApp, it was fourteen, fifteen years ago, but it was yeah. the same. Everybody starts in the mid market. Right, they build something that's a little bit cooler and a little bit cheaper, and they bring it into the mid market, and they make all their mistakes before the customers get too big to actually be painful. I love how you guys started in the hardest and place. We to did, be successful. and we did. We flipped it around, and what we said was, Dave Wright worked at Rackspace. Yep. Right. Started started uh, Jungle Disk. Got bought by Rackspace. Went into Rackspace, and they said, "Here, this is what we have." Build us a cloud storage platform that we can use regardless of what platform we have that we're hosting customers on. And I think he had 12 different storage vendors that he went through and finally came back and said, you just can't. I mean, it's just there's there's not the feature set available. There's not what we want available. Yeah. And said, here's what I want to go build. And Rackspace said, we're a great NetApp customer. We're a great EMC customer. We're not real interested in that. So Dave... Dave bounced and he built it himself, and it was specifically designed for the you know the cloud scale and the service provider market. In that every feature that was put into it, from the the cluster architecture down, was designed around that consumption model. How do I grow in the smallest possible increment? How how do I grow in very focused increments? How yeah. do I build multi tenancy into everything I do? Right in a solid fire environment, I can't provision a volume that doesn't belong to an account, right? I can report on that account. I can set uh, individual uh, initiator masking. I can set 
um, you know, I can set all of my policies per account, but that's not a that's not an add-on. That's not a white paper that we wrote afterwards. That is, you can't provision a volume unless it has one. So, so all of the things that we did, how we did replication, the fact that we never did anything as a point-to-point replication, it was always designed to be a star topology. Um, the fact that our first backup product was to an object storage Right, so that being able yeah. to back up volumes to anything other than object storage isn't really all that economically interesting to the service provider space. Everything that we did was for the the worst possible, you know, most demanding possible environments that that we could find, and so we did really well at that. And I think when I came on board in uh, April of 2014, we were probably 80 percent uh, service provider. But over that period of time, over that three, four years that SolidFire had been selling it, the enterprises were starting to mirror almost all of the requirements for what the service providers were seeing. I want it to be automated. I want it to be easy to manage. I want it to be, uh, I want it to match up much more with my oh, yeah. VMware and OpenStack consumption models than with my traditional storage consumption models. So we took this big service provider grade product and started finding ways where how can we make it enterprise friendly? How can we make it smaller? How can we make it um, more granular from some of the things that we were doing? It means that there's some stuff that we do really, really well that people really haven't started growing into from a traditional enterprise space. Well, it also means that there's a, there's not a whole lot of overlap between the markets. Yeah, you you are tickling all my fancies, by the way. But just full disclosure, I'm currently working on a project that's building service provider solutions using yeah. data on tap. Yeah. And I am intimately well, familiar with all the great, ways that that gets hard. Here's a great back, background story for you. Uh, the gentleman who wrote the secure multi-tenancy paper uh, for FlexPod at NetApp okay. was my boss at VCE. And the very first project that I had at VCE was essentially writing their version of the secure multi-tenancy white paper. And when I got to SolidFire, was asked by the field teams, hey, can we have a copy of that white paper? And the answer was no, because it's it's not optional. Yeah. Right? It's, it's not a solution that we deliver to you. Yep. It's how the storage array works fundamentally without you know, any qualifications. So uh, my, my history, both from the service provider side, as well as my, my vendor stops along the way with the secure multi-tenancy, yeah. uh, it's, uh, I, I can't wait for you to get a chance to dig in to the cluster itself. So, and, so want to play with this thing. It's not even funny. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it actually, um, you've touched on it a couple of times in this, in your, your past three or four minutes, but one of the really nice things about SolidFire is that, um, we supply the APIs for everything that the RIA is capable to to anybody who wants to consume them. So, uh, you know, you if you want to script them, uh, our own UI actually uses the APIs that are available to anybody who wants to use the system. So there's there's nothing that we can do through the UI that you can't do through automation or, or scripting. And, and there's a rule inside SolidFire? That every time we say PowerShell, Josh Atwell has to drink. So that there's feel no. free to use that as much as no, you like. There's 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 yeah. no way that's true. That man would be dead. <laughs> I've been in enough of these have, conversations have you met to Josh? know. Oh, I've known Josh for years. Yeah, <laughs> um, we, we 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 made a run at him before you guys picked him up. Um, so, <laughs> it, well, you got him now. Yeah, one go. big we, we, got we, him. We went the indirect route, um, but but I'm very pleased because yeah. it came with a. Uh, 
a surrounding cast of just amazing oh, awesomeness. Absolutely. Yeah. So uh, I, I'd like to jump back down into the weeds for just a moment sure. um, with regard to you know data layout and and protection, and then uh, really I also want to talk about QoS. Okay. Right? Yeah. We're gonna Q- we're gonna have to break this up into a two parter yeah. probably. <laughs> we're gonna go a little bit long, and my day is gonna be destroyed. But that's all right. We'll deal with it. So I want to take a moment and, and jump back down into the weeds on some of the data stuff. And then, uh, you know, of course, we've we've missed the elephant in the room so far, which is QoS. So uh, oh, We didn't miss it. We're saving the best for last. Okay, fair enough. So, yeah, I, I don't want to take too much time away because I know that, uh, you know, we're already kind of running a little bit long from where we should be. Uh, so, one, uh, you know, I'm curious about, you know, how... So you said that it's a global deduplication space. The data comes in, it gets hashed, right? Does it get laid onto a specific, like a single LUN? Does it belong to a single node, a single disk? Or does it get laid across the entire cluster? You want to take that one, Andy? Uh, so it gets laid across the entire cluster. So I, Jeremiah touched on this a little bit. Yes, I'll take this uh, earlier, where um, the the stuff will come in. We'll, we'll hash it, check for any duplication. If, there, if it's already on block we'll just get rid of it if it's not if i'm sorry if it's already on the cluster we'll just you know we'll update the metadata and be done with it if it isn't we'll compress it and we'll start packing it into a uh a one megabyte chunk and uh, when that one megabyte chunk gets full um we'll figure out which node to lay it out on and and drop it there and that will be um you so at any given time you'll have you might have a bunch of different data streams filling up that one megabyte and that'll get um there's actually like a a bucket that it gets dropped into and, and we identify which bucket it is which bucket it is identifies which node it's on and that's the way it gets written out so uh, so forgive me uh, in advance on tap engineers and, and helix engineers right but this sounds an awful lot like waffle right just at a, a different granularity and that you're able to write data to wherever you can wherever it makes the most sense, um, and in that respect, are there yeah, issues? Not, not, with not, I wouldn't say waffle. I would say more like DDP inside Centricity, uh, but the way yes. that it it's, where it sounds like we're slicing and chunking and and managing at a file system level. Yeah, it's definitely a blend of the technologies, yeah. and and even some of the things that we learned with you know the flash rate project and and how all of those kind of go together. And now it sounds yeah. like what what Solid Fire is doing is a mix of all of them. Right, right. and we yeah. have we have the added uh, we had it we have the added meta object, which is the node itself, right? And if the node has an IP address and that node is going to be the master node that's servicing a specific volume, we are going to, uh, we're going to push those blocks down randomly across all of the nodes so long as it follows all the rules, right? Can't be, can't have two copies of the same block um, on the same node. Uh, But also we have the ability in the background to dynamically shift that around so that if we have uh, changing behavior, particularly in a service provider environment, where I don't ever really know what a customer is going to do with a volume when I present it to them, um, after the fact, once we start seeing traffic, once we start seeing uh, IOPS on the volume, we can start moving things around on the back end. So it's not just a static we're going to push it down randomly across all of the disks that are available. We're going to push it down in the context of the rules that our data protection 
and then the optimization that is we can move data around dynamically on the back end to make sure that we can deliver the performance and expectations that the customers had of those volumes. So does, does right. that algorithm take into account heterogeneous clusters as well? Yes. So the mixed cluster node, uh, we, which we didn't touch on, well, Andy touched on it a little bit, uh, is absolutely taken into account from both an HA perspective and a load balancing perspective. So if we did four smaller nodes, a starter node, a proof of concept for a customer, and then what they realize is we need capacity more than we need performance. Mm -hmm. We want to put in larger nodes. The, that mixed node cluster from an HA perspective is going to be mathematically balanced, but kind of distributedly imbalanced in that if we lose a larger node, we still have to have the ability to take up uh, all of those blocks and reprotect them across the rest of the cluster. So all of that math happens on the back end. Element OS takes care of all of, all of that. That's okay. not anything that the customer has to has to worry about. Uh, we we will provide some general guidance for them. Like you don't want to do you know four of the smallest and then you know two of the largest node just because math wise you know there's there's uh, you're going to have some. Um, you're going to have some inefficiencies in how much of that capacity on the smaller nodes you can use. But uh, we can do mixed node across all of the models, uh, and we've actually guaranteed the compatibility. So we're on the third generation of hardware. We're on the eighth generation of software. Customers can mix and match not just different um, members of the current family of solid fire nodes, but any solid fire node that we've ever released and have under maintenance is going to work with any version of Element OS that we release going forward. So customers don't have to worry that you can't use new feature X until you upgrade the the hardware that it's running on. Um, customers don't have to go back and worry about any of that. The the uh, Element OS takes care of that for them. Very cool. Right. So the the old selling point of uh, no forklift upgrades. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah, man. I'm so wow. I'm 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 uh, coming to grips with this information as I ingest it, and and I'm well, and I'm overlaying and think about it. it. This and, is exactly. Yeah. This is the this is the conversation I have with customers all the time. Yeah. Right. right. Where where it's it's cool and they get it and they want to really see them walk have through just it. Made but, it but now, for you know, I'll get phone calls for the next two days going. Wait, does that mean that I can do? It? Yeah. Yeah. It does. Yeah. Like yeah. that. It it just takes a little while to to move that frame of reference over. Yeah, so let's let's get into a little bit more of the QoS, where um, we actually, for each volume that you have on your system, you you actually set a, a min and a max IOPS for that uh, for that volume. Yeah, so, so so yeah, and 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 perhaps this is the the correct time because I have been waiting for the better part of three years to ask this question, <laughs> and I can finally ask it. Uh oh. Someone explain to me how you set a minimum. Uh three to six digit number in a field yep. when you provision the volume how yes. do you, is is that it so, so so that's the hard part so right? perhaps this is marketing literature but from afar right right one of the things that 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 I've I've come to to kind of understand and I've and I've heard from customers particularly in the SP space right add a node 50,000 IOPS right. right and you just keep adding nodes and that's that's your your performance pool that's my pool right, right. Yep. and and uh, your your capacity will give you your capacity pool and you just allocate out of those pools and that's all fantastic but the thing that is always kind of bugs me in the back of my mind, and maybe it's just documented somewhere and, and we just need to write it down, but it, like an IOP is not a unit of measurement. Correct. It's a varying unit of measurement. So how do you guarantee 50,000 of those things? What if they're all 64K well, rights? You're right. not committing no, all of that. So, so the, an IOP in solid fire parlance is a 4K IO. And we, we actually have a sliding scale. So if you're doing smaller block sizes, it's it'll be... Uh, you know, somewhat more. And if you're doing larger block sizes, it'll be somewhat less. It's um, 
it's all normalized around a 4K IOP. And and the reason, you know, I actually I had the question when I started, why do we use this number of IOPs rather than like outstanding commands or, or whatever? And it's, um, you know, IOP is actually a, a decent measure of uh, number of commands over the queue size. Yeah, and, and, and it's also a number that, that, that many, many, many different disciplines is actually, are actually familiar with. Like, go talk to DBAs. They know about IOPS. Virtualization right. administrators know about IOPS. So it's, it's, it's a unit of measure that makes sense from, from a policy perspective. Megabits per second is much more accurate from a throughput measurement right. from a quality of service and, know, enforcement. And, and latency would be an interesting measurement to yeah. use from a workload perspective, right? The, yeah, the right. good totally. news is that all three of those are really part of the same math equation. Yeah. And yep. so one of, the, one of the benefits that we get from having been an all-flash and only-flash architecture is that the latency floor for us, the predictability of what the response time is going to be off the drives is pretty well known. Um, you know, that part of, we're, we're not having to solve for all three variables. One of them, we can put a ballpark around just because of the type of media that we're using, which would have been a lot harder, which would be a lot harder to do with spinning disk, where you've got a huge variance in what that response time is based on what type of disk it is or where on the disk it's written. So right. from... And, and, we, and we actually take advantage of that as well, because the way that we, we actually come up with these guarantees is uh, if we know what the latency off the storage itself is... Uh, we can add as much latency as we need to to make sure that the the guarantees are met. Right. So that's that's actually the ah. way. That so latency for us becomes a tool to use. So so let's picture we've got a storage array and it's got we'll use a small number, arbitrarily small. We'll say ten volumes. So, go ahead, Andy. Uh, yeah. So um, I, I'll let you go with your example, but it's it's actually one of the the huge differences between the way that we view QoS and other folks view QoS is uh, when we say that we have a QoS guarantee, we do it by by playing with latency. We don't do it by rate limiting. We don't we don't say, oh, you've reached your limit. We're going to chop you. So perhaps we need to just we just need to build this house. So I, I'll I'll stop interrupting and let whichever one of you uh, wants to do it. But let's go, go ahead. Down, just build the foundation for us. Walk us through how quality service actually works sure. in this product. Because we're using the same words, but but it's very clear that we're not talking about the same thing. Yep. Go, Jeremiah. All right. So uh, if we do it from an example standpoint, we've got we've got ten volumes on a cluster. Um, if we were to provision all of those volumes such that um, you know we've used all of the effective. Uh, performance on that cluster. So we've okay. we've provisioned ten volumes. We've used all fifty thousand IOPS. Um, each of those volumes is also going to have an associated minimum with it, and you can't provision more minimum than you have capacity in the array. Um, a lot like doing memory reservations or CPU reservations, uh, okay. shares reservations yeah. in VMware. That makes sense. Right? So what's going to happen is you're going to, we've got the min, we've got the max, and we've got a concept called burst, which the service providers love, which we can talk about oh, yeah. in a little bit. But if we just stick with the min and the max, what happens is the IO comes in, and the IO fills up each of those um, QoS buckets as it goes through. When we get to a situation where the cluster doesn't have the ability to satisfy all of the IOPS that are coming through, it's going to start bringing the QoS into play. So the only time QoS gets used is when there's contention, which I think is important to recognize, both on that the max end, and is but unique. On, on the minimum end, that the, the QoS comes into play when there's contention. If a volume were to become IO bound, um, your VDI boot volumes, okay, right? 
what will happen is when it gets to the effective IOPS level and QoS kicks in and says, okay, no more, that's when we start playing with the amount of latency and the cues that that volume has in order to be able to slow it down and say, this is all you get. And that's how we keep that data, that, uh, that IOPS, that IO bound application from spilling over into the rest of them, right? So it's not rate limiting. It's actually leveraging the fact that we have control over the latency of those volumes and the queues in order to be able to bring that down. But that's not, um, I don't think that that's super unique, right? There are lots of different ways to do that. I think ours is really elegant. I think ours takes advantage of the architecture really well, and we can do it at gigantic scale. But the ability to say you get this many IOPS and no more really isn't the magic. The magic is that on the back end, as we get to that point where all of those volumes are starting to run up against their maximums, we're going to start backing volumes down proactively in order to make sure that those minimums can always be met. And we're going to do that not blanket across all of the volumes. We're going to do that based on the spread between the minimum and the maximum. So if you've got a volume mm. that has a minimum of 100 and a maximum of 20,000, we're going to back that 20,000 off pretty quick when we get into a situation where we need to start guaranteeing IOPS to, to volumes because of contention. If you've got something where the spread is fairly narrow, where you've got a minimum of 2,500 and a maximum of 5,000, we're going to leave those alone as long as we possibly can because you've obviously gone through and said the the uh, the, the IOPS threshold on this volume is much more fine-tuned. So for those customers that have general purpose volumes that they're basically saying, in a best-case scenario, give it all of the IOPS that the array has, right? Whatever Whatever that workload is, give it everything that it has. We're going to back those off as aggressively and as quickly as we need to in order to make sure that the minimum amount of IOPS for every volume on the entire array is always capable of being satisfied. And to do that, part of it is the, the element OS, right? I mean, part of it is that the software has to be built to do that. The other part is, and I think it rubs off, um, you know, uh, Andy Grimes was doing a WebEx for the SolidFire sales teams today. And one of the things that he commended us on is that we're, um, we're, we're almost uh, annoyingly honest with kind of the, the you know, the, the particularly the marketing specs of the box. Yeah. Um, one of the things that we have to do in order to make sure that we can always guarantee QoS is that we... Uh, probably understate what the clusters and what the nodes are available or, or are capable of doing. Um, you know, the first customer meeting that I ever had was with a financial services company in New York. I sat down in the room. The guy came in and he said, I'm really upset because you have massively misrepresented what this cluster can do. And I'm thinking, oh, God, here we go. Like, seriously, on my first day? And he said, you promised me 200,000 IOPS out of the cluster. I'm getting 280,000, and it's not even really breathing hard. Yeah. Right? Because that's the difference between I can give you 50,000 per node and promise you no matter what you're doing to it, no matter what you've done with the QoS, I'm always going to be able to deliver what I've promised. The boxes can do a lot more than that. And for specific workloads and specific workload types, um, you know, th the boxes can, can outperform the marketing numbers, but our job is not to outperform. Our job is to always guarantee that the things that you've allocated out are capable of being satisfied. And, and if that means that we go lower on some of those hero numbers, some of the benchmark numbers than we would normally otherwise, that's just the way that we're going to sell the product. It's honesty as a service. 
<laughs> I I actually love that answer, and and I love the f- I, I believe every word of it, because of course I would. Why wouldn't I? But <laughs> but you know I, I I love it because it 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 honestly addresses you know if we're comparing con- con- contrasting two different views and two different approaches, right. we already have the other approach. Yes, right. We have yes. data on tap. It is what it is. It's it's not going anywhere. Right. Uh, it, it's it's understanding uh, the advantages and and where uh, Element OS took a left, where ONTAP took a yep. right, and why it yep. took a left. Right, there's a reason behind right. it, and, and, and there are customers that are really happy both ways. Yeah. Our job is to be predictable, programmatic, and scalable. And sometimes that means specific use cases. Sometimes that's service providers. Sometimes that's big global workloads. Yeah. Sometimes that's taking lots of little enterprise workloads and consolidating them onto a storage array. There's no um, there's no real perfect workload set underneath there. It just depends on the mix and how everything's are working. But those are the things you know, when when we look at the five elements and and for the people listening, you go out to the Solid Fire website. There are five elements that are the core of everything we build around. And our job is not to be everything to all people. Our job is to be the best we possibly can at those five elements, delivering them the way that our customers need them. And what it means is that it we've been very good at saying yes, this is what we do, and no, that's probably not, right? If, you, if, you've got, if you've got an Oracle database and you want the fastest blazing speed with the lowest latency, that's not what SolidFire does. The good news is that now with the acquisition by NetApp, we've got a portfolio where we can solve both of those problems for you, right? And, yeah. and that's really, uh, to those of us who, uh, you know, to those of us who have spent a lot of time really focusing in on what SolidFire is good at, being able to bring that to the larger com- company and, and have them say, that's great, and we've got lots of customers that'll be okay with that, but we don't have to lose the rest of the deals, right? We don't have to say no to the rest of the, the rest of the customers that are around there because there will be an AFF product or there will be an EF product that fits into that niche really well. Yeah, um, that That's pretty exciting for those of us that have worked in the yeah. field for the last so couple of years. I wanted to just touch a little bit more on the, the QoS example you gave. So, um, so we do allow a situation where you can actually over-provision number of IOPS available. Uh, and, you know, if you do that, um, your cluster will actually give you a warning and say, hey, you've you've tried to provision more IOPS than we're actually capable of doing. But we still allow that to happen, and we actually take that into account. If, if we look at a situation where the, the IOPS have been over-provisioned and you start getting into a workload that would be running up against that, we're still going to back everything off proportionally based on what IOP numbers you've given each workload. So, you know, maybe maybe if you said that you want your minimum IOPS to be 100 and you've loaded the array to the point where we can't supply minimum 100 IOPS to every workload, we'll still back it off proportionally and each one might get 80 or 90. Uh, we're never going to go into a starvation scenario. Yep, and if you think about that from your from your service provider yeah. background, uh, that's that's the risk knob. Oh, got right? it. That's the I can sell fifty percent and my risk is low and my cost is high, or I can sell a hundred and fifty percent and my risk is high but my return on that is high. And especially for the service providers, we would much rather let them pick where that risk level is going to be. Um, you know, as long as we're clear, as long as the uh, the UI clearly says we'll let you do that, but understand that uh, you know, kind of like thin on thin provisioning, we will let you do that. Buyer beware a little bit around you know operator beware of what it is that you're doing. Uh, the service providers pretty much think that's the greatest thing ever. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, that's that's been the the, the number one uh, thing that that I've been running into for the past nine months is is people just like what no threshold. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. No, it's rate limiting. It's a different business model. Yeah. It's a different way of running your infrastructure. Yeah, and, I, and I think that that was actually uh, you guys had talked to Andy yeah. about that uh, last week. the uh, The fueled by solid fire program is what we built specifically for service providers. Uh, so fueled by solid fire is the you know the the buy incrementally, pay as yeah. you go. Uh, we spend a significant amount of time doing service creation and product creation with them, not just selling them stuff, but showing them how to turn that into into services and turn that into revenue. Um, and we've got people who are dedicated just to that. So uh, I'm excited to get you plugged in with them. Yeah, yeah, I desperately need to meet those people <laughs> for different reasons. But yeah, um, it's. I, I feel like you, you, you very succinctly explained this at the very beginning of this interview, and, and the three of us just weren't hip enough to what was ta- being talked about to really get it. Uh, at the very top when you said, you know, v- VMware came along and changed the way that... that uh, IT administrators around the world think about servers. You're right. It absolutely changed the conversation. We don't talk about distributed stacks or, or bespoke deployments, right? We talk in terms of what is the CPU and memory pool required for the service and or distributed application. And how do, how do I provision out in the ratio I need and how yeah. do I protect that at whatever level the workload requires? And, and everyone understands what that means. And, and when you start to, to talk about risk and overcommitment sure. and, and where, you know, where are you going to keep your excess well, capacity, all those numbers are, are all of a sudden really feature. easy. Yeah. Right, it's a DRS. Right? We love DRS. We do the exact same thing with OS distributing across the nodes in the so background. Interesting. HA, how do I proactively, um, or you know, uh, uh, vMotion, how do I proactively move workloads from one to the other? HA, how do I reactively move workloads from one to the other? Like all of those concepts that we take for granted because we are pooling and distributing all of those CPU and RAM resources across a cluster, they all map directly into the things that we're trying to do. And we we collectively we kind of let storage off the hook. We, yeah, we made the server vendors change. We made you know HP and IBM and Dell and everybody bow to what we wanted and how they delivered servers to us. And we just kept on with the same storage architecture. And so it's it's interesting to see somebody like SolidFire who uh, came at it from a completely different perspective. Right? It wasn't from a it wasn't a company that had a traditional storage product. Yeah. Say. If we were going to build this in a vacuum for this audience, what's the best way to do it? And the end result looks an awful lot like what um, what VMware did on the on the data center side. Well, Why well, reinvent the wheel, man? The problem's been solved. Sorry, Andy, I'm talking over you. Go ahead, buddy. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say a, a handy little tie-in right now is uh, is you know once we have VVOLs released on SolidFire, it it's going to tie in even better to this, that concept. Um, you know, VMFS was pretty much a an idea from VMware on, well, how do we virtualize storage because, you know, the storage vendors aren't doing it for us. And uh, when they came along with VVOLs, it, it's going to make it a lot easier and a, a lot saner concept for the way that SolidFire looks at storage. All right. Well, th- th- man, I've learned so much today. This is, uh, I, you know, I... I I guess uh, the, the only polite thing to do, you know, we'll, we'll formally bring you guys all the way in to NetApp, uh, and we'll welcome you to our world. So let's go ahead, and we'll just throw some nonsense fun into the conversation, and I'll just make something oh, up. fun. Yeah. So you only store two copies of the data. How is that safe in a distributed JBOD deployment? You just got really angry. Hey, well, hey, I'm just hey, saying. settle down, Glenn. Calm down. Settle down. <laughs> oh, do, do your customers not ask you like that sometimes? <laughs> 
Is that just me? Is that just you? Well, well we don't view it as a, a JPOD environment. It, it's actually, um, we we consider it the, the double helix approach where uh, we helix lay out the, the data. And uh, to date, two copies has been enough. Uh, we've started looking at what happens when we get into really big deployments where you run into the potential of, uh, of a double node failure. And uh, we're actually looking at the idea of having a, a triple helix for when you get into that type of situation. Uh, but but to date, two has been adequate. We, yeah, I mean, it, it's just math, right? I mean, we look at yeah. the we look at the failure rate across the nodes. We look at the failure rate of the drives. We look at the size of the clusters. We look at the hundred node max, which realistically, um, that hundred node max isn't. There's no science behind that. That's yeah. just the uh, the point at which the risk of a double node failure becomes greater than we're willing to tell customers to accept. So the the uh, the double helix works great for every environment that we could install SolidFire into today. Um, going forward, we have options, right? The triple helix is certainly one of them. Uh, like Andy said, it gets expensive, right? We're we're already yep we're already we're already doubling up the number of blocks that we need when we move to triple helix, even if we did it selectively. Like maybe per yeah. volume, um, you know, it, it gets really expensive. But there are other data layout techniques, right? I mean, there are other ways for us to be able to protect that data in a clustered file system or in a clustered environment across the nodes. Um, you know, I think one of the things that universally we're pretty excited about uh, getting to work with NetApp is just the amount of resources around data layout and data file systems and those sorts of things. The experience that you guys have, there's a there's a there's a spectacular roadmap that SolidFire already had in place. Uh, I only see that getting better and moving faster over time, uh, which I think will help not just this. I mean, this is yeah. you know, certainly one place that we can do some investigations and see if there's a, a, a better way to, to, to skin that particular cat, uh, but also with the entire rest of the, the integration um, and protocol stack. I think we're pretty excited about it. Right. Yeah, I, I'm not legitimately worried about it. Let's be clear. Like, you guys <laughs> don't get to it. The, the, the good doctor, uh, uh, Chris Gephardt, uh, we call him the doctor around here. Uh, our, the the VDI reference architect from NetApp, of course. Um, we jo we joke often uh, how there are things that people you know poke at in this business, yeah. just because people pay attention to it, uh, that ultimately don't really matter because you don't get to where right. you have gotten. Just like we don't get to where we've gotten if you make those types yep. of mistakes. You don't yep. get to lose customer data ever yep. in the storage business. Yeah. It's a, so right. it's, a, it's a good segue um, into the, uh, the, the storage field day video that we yeah. were going to kind of close out with. Oh, yeah, good call. I um, forgot. One of, the, you know, one of the things that the storage field day folks are, are famous for is in any sort of uh, dedupe or compression-based metadata system, uh, asking what's the algorithm that you use for caching and or for hashing, and what's the you, you know what's your collision rate, and what are you worried about there? Yeah. And, um, the only real answer is we did the math; it's all good. Yeah. We're you know right. This was actually summed up pretty easily, pretty clearly, uh, sometime earlier, I guess last week, where um, they just basically one of the solid fire principles has always been that uh, data and math beat logic every time. <laughs> right. Yeah, and the, da the data and math is really what we've built it on. And, and to that point, uh, I would encourage all of the listeners, uh, Dave Wright, who's our CEO, 
one of the one of the coolest people that I've ever gotten to work with did a storage field day presentation uh, last year where he goes through an architectural comparison between Extreme IO, Pure, and Solid Fire, and it's oh. it's not done from a competitive standpoint. It's not yeah. a it's not a you know, we're better than this or they're better than them. What it was is that when you look at flash architectures, there's always trade offs. Right, you can be fast in things, you can scale in things, you can be first to market in things, you can be cheap at things. Uh, there's lots of different criteria that that vendors use when they're building or when they're buying uh, flash platforms. And he does a great kind of uh, you know 300 level class on what storage architectures look like and how flash matters. And um, it's not just that it's fast. And he, yeah. you know, he, he does a great job with it. So if any of your listeners out there want to have kind of the beginning to end, not just here's how SolidFire does it, and I think we did a pretty good job of covering a bunch of that today, but then how does that map competitively and what are the differentiators and what do those trade-offs mean today and in the future and 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 those sorts of things uh nobody on earth has ever done it better than dave wright did at that storage field day so it's on youtube uh search for dave wright storage field day and it should be the the top entry on the list you yeah. go ahead and uh tap tap your uh, podcast player and and click the link because we'll go ahead and include it in, in the show notes yes so that along with several other things will be in the show notes for this particular episode so if you don't look at the uh the notes or the blog posts that go on to the netapp communities this would be a great yeah, episode the, to check out we, we know there's there's an uh, it's really different uh, it is uh, a new experience for many of the people at NetApp but certainly for many of the NetApp partners and NetApp customers uh, we've spent an awful lot of time and invested an awful lot in making sure that we have the resources available to answer the the deep technical questions you know how, how do we do data pathing and get data onto an SSD but also the higher level questions of why is you know why does SolidFire have the best Cinder implementation on the planet, right? What what are the reasons behind that? What does that mean for customers? So uh, whether it's implementation side, whether it's solution side, or whether it's architecture side, uh, you know, Andy, myself, the entire tech solutions team, uh, Andy Grimes, all of the people that that you're uh, you're going to have here on the podcast over the next little while, all of us are here to help make sure to surface resources, to surface people, or to uh, break out a whiteboard and start drawing what it looks like in the uh, in the solid fire environment. So please don't hesitate uh, to reach out and let us know what we can do to help. Yeah, to that end, listeners, you know how to, to uh, give, get us the feedback. Podcast at netup.com. Send us your questions. Send us your comments. If, if there's something we talked about today that, that you think uh, we need to deep dive on a little bit more, just go ahead, drop us suggestions. Yeah. We'll, uh, we'll go find the relevant engineer wherever they may live, uh, and we'll get them in the show. Sounds great. Yeah, yeah, so let them know how to get in touch with us as well. Uh, abanta at netapp.com and out on the Twitterverse at, at Andy Banta. Jeremiah, how do we get in touch with you on the Twitterverse? Uh, so interestingly, it's been one of the, 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 the best parts of my NetApp onboarding. Uh, my email address is jeremiah at netapp.com, which is kind of interesting. It's J-E-R-A-M-I-A-H at netapp.com, and I'm at jdooley underscore CLT on Twitter. Yeah, you did way better than Lamey. Lamey. Yeah. I wasn't going to bring that up. Well, Jeremiah, Andy, uh, we want to thank you very, very much for spending time with us today. It's been a, a, an intense hour and a half, even though I know all 90 minutes won't make it into the final cut of the podcast. Um, fantastic information. Really can't thank you enough. And uh, we look forward to having you guys back in the future. Great. Thank you, guys. Continuing to dive deep forward into quick. Solid Fire. Yeah, this was this was a good old school deep dive. It's been a while since the, since we've gone to just 
I, we should probably put a propeller hat warning at the very beginning of this episode. Yeah. Like if if you're more more in the marketing than the engineering side, this may not be for you. Yeah. Um, but uh, th- this has been this a lot of fun for me. I normally go. Who was that again? What was that Andy? This isn't even as deep as I could go. Yeah, I, w- I was going to say we uh, we have to walk the line between making it consumable and if you know there's a there are more than enough presentations internally about literally the math that goes in behind things like QoS where uh, you know there's there's uh, there's way 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 more where this came from. So hopefully we can keep these conversations going. Sounds awesome. Yeah, I don't think there's any hopefully to that. <laughs> it's just a matter Sounds of uh, you guys are incredibly busy. Uh, you're, you're in a, a very, very popular uh, person at the moment. Uh, just about everybody that I know is trying to get get some time with their, their local solid fire resource. Uh, so thank you so much of for course. making the time today to come talk to our listeners. Thank you, guys. Well, thanks. All right, that music tells me it's time to go. If you'd like to get in touch with us, send us an email to podcast at netapp.com or send us a tweet at netapp. As always, if you'd like to subscribe, find us on iTunes or SoundCloud or via the techontappodcast.com. If you like the show today, leave us a review. On behalf of the entire Tech on Tap podcast team, I'd like to thank Jeremiah Dooley and Andy Banton from Solidfire for joining us this week, as well as Amy Lewis and Aaron Dell for talking to us last week. And remember to send your questions in to be featured on the NetApp Tech on Tap podcast. And as always, thanks for listening. We didn't have any questions this week. What's up, listeners? We've got some questions. We're just working them in the background. We uh, haven't. Uh, that's true. Is it just more questions, please? Well, plus we've recorded like three episodes in four days, so yeah, that true. could be why we don't have any questions. Well, solidifier questions. I mean, if you have those, yeah, we could use a lot of those. Send them in. We know people. Just saying.